Amen. And you may be seated. You may be seated. Well, in the first half of chapter 2, what James does is he really addresses and confronts a problem that arose early on in church history. The problem that he confronts is the sin of partiality or the sin of prejudice. Uh, the sin of partiality really is, is the sin of treating someone either favorably or unfavorably based solely on outward appearances. Well, guess what? They struggled with it then. Now, 2,000 years later, we still feel the tensions of social, financial, educational, and racial distinctions, and we continue, the church overall continues to struggle with the sin of partiality. Now, I find it interesting, sometimes even humorous, when I hear uh, somebody say something of this nature, they'll say, uh, they'll say, you know what, we really just need to get back to being like the church in the New Testament. It's usually young people, you know, they're all fired up, which is good. And on one hand, they're absolutely right. We have gone so far away from so much of what God wants us to be about. It would be good for us to be able to go and to be and to practice as the first century church was practicing. On the other hand, the first century church, just so that you know, is exactly like us. See, it's, 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 here, here, here's the deal. It's easy for us to begin to kind of like almost glorify uh, and to think of the early church as this like perfect little body of unity that everything was going so well, especially when you read passages like Acts chapter 2. You get to Acts chapter 2, and literally people are like selling their speedboats to be able to give money to the poor, right? They're selling everything they have to meet needs. They're meeting every day in fellowship. They're breaking bread with one another. I mean, this is incredible community, but don't be fooled by thinking that they had it all together. Don't be thinking that the early church just, they didn't suffer from any problems. They did. Why? Because just like us, they were sinners saved by grace. And once they were born again, they had to learn what it looked like to live this Christian life. They had to understand what it looked like to live and to follow after Christ. Remember, that's really what the purpose of James is. James is showing us what it looks like to live out true Christian faith. And what James is, is going to do is he's going to show him in this section very clearly. He says, look, you've been saved. You, you were born again. You heard the gospel. Now, this is what it looks like or this is what it doesn't look like to follow after Christ and, and to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And now in this section, he's going to say, look, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you claim to be saved, you claim to be born again, then you should have no part of the sin of partiality. You should have nothing to do with it. It's completely inconsistent with the Christian faith. Well, guess what? Even today, 2,000 years later, it has no place in the Christian church. It has no place in the Christian faith. It has no place in the Christian mind or in the Christian heart. And so what he's going to do is he's going to show us in this passage why that is. Why is the sin of prejudice? Why is the sin of partiality? Why is the judging or liking or not liking somebody merely because of the outward appearance? Why is that completely contrary to the gospel? Well, what, look what he does in verse one. First, he's just gonna start with a command. Here, here's a clear-cut command. Follow with me. He says, my brothers, he says, show no partiality as you hold the truth, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So there's the command. Do you see it? He says, show no partiality. Now, the Greek word there for partiality, translated partiality, is a compound Greek word, which means it's made up of two distinct Greek words. So it's made up of two different ideas kind of shoved together. On one idea, you have the word that means to receive. On the other side, you have a word that means to lift up the faith. 
the, the face. The picture is somebody determining whether they're going to be nice to them, accept them, or reject them based on what they see once they look at their face. And James says this is completely inconsistent with Christianity. And so he commands them this ought not to be a part of your life or a part of your faith. In modern vernacular, here's how we would say it. Don't judge a book by its what? By its cover. So he says this. Here's the command. Don't do it. Shouldn't be any part. Now he's going to give us an example of what it looks like. I love James. It's filled with illustrations. So I don't have to come up with as many. So, so what he does, he, he shows, he goes, look, here's what it's like. And what he does, he's going to give an illustration that I believe all of them could identify with. Remember, he's sending a letter around Asia Minor. All of these different churches are going to go from house church to house church. They're going to read this. And so what he's doing is he's giving an illustration that every single one of them probably have identified and seen at one point to the other. Now, what is it? Now, notice verse 2. He gives it to us. He lays it out. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine, in fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So let's take a moment and really unpack this illustration. What exactly is James describing here? Well, he says, look, he says, there's an assembly. Now, what kind of assembly? We're not completely sure, but let me tell you what I think is going on here. The most likely, remember, these are Christian Jews, they're, they're Messianic Jews, they were Jews and they came to faith in Jesus Christ, they're most likely meeting in a Jewish synagogue. Why? Because they grew up Jewish, and so as soon as Christ is resurrected, they're, they're so used to going to the synagogue for biblical instruction, they're probably there once again. So they're probably gathering around a group of Christians, say, hey, let's get together, we'll talk about the word, they're meeting in homes, but here they're coming for some instruction. And so what happens is later in history, when things begin to heat up between Jews and Gentiles, they begin to separate and begin to part. You see more of a distinction between them. But now they're all together to hear God's word. And then what happens is, simultaneously, two men walk into the assembly. Most likely, possibly new believers, possibly, they, they walk in, but these two guys couldn't be more different. The first guy that comes in looks like he stepped right out of a fashion magazine, all right? He is Mr. GQ. He's got it all together, right? And this guy is, I mean, he is swanky, all right? You, you know that word, right? Swanky, all right? He's swanky. We know that because of his rings, all right? Now, this is a little weird for us. Uh, think Mr. T, all right? Um, think Mr. T, go back just a little bit. He's got gold rings on every digit of his fingers. His, his, his rings have rings, all right? They're all gold. And then what would, you say, well, what's so significant about that? Well, the word literally there says he was gold-fingered. In other words, all of his fingers were gold because of these rings. The significance of that is that these gold rings were the quintessential way to identify rich people in that first century in this culture. In other words, if you want to know how, how rich they were, just be like, bling, baby. Yeah, right there. How rich are you? Well, did you check this out? All right. And the more gold rings you had and the more jewels that were in it, precious jewels that were in it, you'd be like, dude, that guy is rich. So don't think, okay, driving up an old pickup truck and driving up in Ferrari, we're just sitting there going, look at the fingers, look at the fingers. You'll know how much money they have. All right. So this guy is wearing the bling. In fact, during that day, you could actually go, you know how people want to look like they're more prosperous than what they are? You could actually go and rent gold rings. Isn't that cool? Just in case you want to impress, you know, you're having your 20th year anniversary, and you're like, hey, listen, I want to look like we're doing better. Let me go rent some gold rings, and they'd flash it to everyone. Well, he's got the rings, but he's also got the clothes. So he's got the brightest, coolest, fanciest, 
toga money can buy when he walks in with this thing. It's got the little polo, you know, like uh, up on the left thing. And he's wearing this thing in, and people are just ooing and awing over this guy. He's incredibly well-to-do. At the same time he comes in, Mr. Swanky, along comes Mr. Shabby, okay? He's got no gold rings. He's got no polo toga. He comes in, and it's shabby. You, you understand what shabby is, right? I mean, he looks undone. He's probably got his shirt untucked. Can you believe that? Uh, can't believe it. And he, he comes in like this, and he's just not, he doesn't really have it all together. Now, at this particular point, no harm, no foul. Everything that's happening is exactly the way that God would have it happen, that the door to the house of God is open for everyone, Right? And it is marked by great diversity. So there's somebody really, really rich, as rich as they get, Mr. Rich Goldfinger. On the other side, no finger, whatever, shabby clothes, untucked guy, unkept guy, coming in. All this is good. The diversity is exactly as it ought to be. The distinctions and the inconsistency in the hearts of the people and the treatment of these men is where it all goes wrong. See, you, you, you notice kind of what happens, right? When the rich guy comes in, what are people doing? Oh, sir, man, it's so great to be able to have you here. Sit over here. Sit over here. No, you really need to be sitting over here. Why is that significant? It's significant because remember in Mark, we learned this, is that for the Jews, where they sat was everything. Where you sat really ultimately demonstrated your value and your worth. So you wanted the very best seat. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for desiring to sit in the best seats amongst men. And so they want this good seat, and the people are willing to give theirs up. They're willing to get him as close to the podium as they possibly can. Why? Why do they, why do they view him as important? Simply because he's rich. On the other side, the man who walks in with him, another human being, another creation of God walks into the place. He's poor, and what do they do? They don't even offer a seat. Instead, they say, hey, man, hey, look, you stand over here. Or here, you sit down on my feet. I'm not giving my seat up. Why? Simply because of this. Because they look at him and they determine the value of the man and how they're going to treat him simply because of the way that he looks. James is sitting there going, this is exactly what ought not to be happening amongst God's people. But within those verses, he also tells us why. Why is this type of prejudice inconsistent with the Christian faith? He's going to give us three very quick reasons why. First of all, let's see it. First, it's inconsistent with who we are. It is completely and utterly inconsistent with who we are. Let me draw your attention back to the beginning of verse 1. Did you notice the, the words there? He, say, he starts it off with what? My brothers. Do you see that? He says, everybody see that? Nod your head. All right, all right, you're like, what, what, what book are we in? No, we're in James, all right, uh, chapter two, all right, verse one. And so you look at that James. Now, if you've been paying attention, you've noticed that he's used this several times in different sections of the book. In fact, he's used it three times, and he uses it every time he's introducing a new idea or he's beginning to teach something new. For example, in, in, in chapter one and verse two, he said, count it all joy, my brothers, in chapter 1 and verse 19, starting a new section, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, he's using my brothers again. So he does use it to be able to start a new section, but I think here he's using it to let us know something even more. He's reminding us of who we are. He's saying anybody, now catch this, anybody who is a true believer in Jesus Christ a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Let me explain what that is. 
for a person who is, recognizes themselves as a sinner, deserving of the wrath of God, by grace and hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ, they've repented of their sin, they've turned from their sin, and they've put all the weight of their whole life on the truth and the completed work of Jesus Christ. They said, Jesus Christ, save me. And so they're born again. He says, all of those people, he goes, guess what? Our family. All of those people have one God, or one, one God, which is one Father. We all share our Heavenly Father God. But did you know this? That we are also co-heirs with Jesus, which means that Jesus, it's a picture of him being our brother. And guess what else? We have more brothers and sisters you can count. Everybody who is in the faith, everybody who is a born again, is a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. Here's kind of the point. The point is, the world wants to divide us and the people into as many categories as they possibly can. They want to distinguish between this person and that person. They'll do it by how tall you are, how much money you make, uh, what kind of, whether you're Caucasian or whether you're African-American, whatever it is. They've got all these different categories. When Jesus Christ comes and dies, there's only two categories, saved and lost. If you are born again, you are a child of God, and you are all brothers and sisters in Christ. You got that? That's the picture. That's who we are. Now, what he does here is, and this is interesting, we see a clearest picture of this, I think, played out in the book of Philemon. Remember the book of Philemon? Paul writes to Philemon. Philemon is a rich businessman. He lives in Colossae. He's got lots of money. Paul's writing him. Here's why. Because Philemon has a slave. He's probably got many slaves. The slave Onesimus runs away. He steals from Philemon. He runs away. Now, if you're a, a thief on the run, a slave on the run, a runaway, runaway slave, where are you going to go? Well, you're going to go to the biggest city possible. You go to a small town. You go to Yuli. People are going to be like, hey, I know you. You ain't from around here, are you? Right? So that's, we're going to recognize you ain't from around here. You go to Rome, okay, and all of a sudden you're able to just kind of, you know, hide a little bit. But what does the Scripture say? The Scriptures say overall that God can see you in the midst of the crowd. And so he supernaturally hooks Onesimus, this runaway slave, up with Paul who is in prison in Rome. He puts them together. Very strange, very odd couple. They take to each other. They love each other. Now, to understand the significance of this, you have to understand who they were before they came to faith in Jesus Christ, right? So you have the apostle Paul who is a Jew, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is a part of the elite tribe of Benjamin. He's probably very affluent, very well-educated, right? He is, he is a Pharisee, very well-respected. On the other side, who do you have? Slave, runaway, thieving slave at that. He is the scum of the earth. The dredge of society is Onesimus. They come together they are pals. No, they are more than pals. When Paul writes to, to, um, to Philemon, he says that he is a, what? Brother. And then he tells his master, Philemon, he says, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, but I don't want you to receive him as a slave. I want you to receive him as a, what? As a Brother. In Jesus Christ. So you guys get this, right? You get the significance of what's going on here. Here's what I'm going to say, and you tell me if you believe in this. We Christians are well known for making mountains out of molehills. Are you with me? Things that really don't matter at all, all of a sudden we blow up, and they're huge deals, right? Especially in the church, all right? So music is a big deal. How many beats per measure does it have? 
Does it have drums? Does it not have drums? You know, does it have a guitar? Does it have a lead guitar? What is the, how many decibels are being played? Because this is how you know whether God is there or not, right? What are they dressing? What are they wearing? You know, all, all these, and what happens is you have these group of people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, and they look at things that make no difference at all or are completely insignificant. And what they do is they drive back the same divisions that Jesus drove out. So it, 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 let me just give, give you a real life, uh, since we're talking about tuck shirts, let me just give this to you just for a minute. On Easter, you remember this last Easter, because some, some of you have pictures of it. I tucked in my shirt. And I wore khaki pants. See, some of you are like, yeah, 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 I, know. I got the picture right here. Look, right here. Okay, and so what I did, let me kind of tell you, let me just tell you from a, from a pastor's heart what is happening. I was struggling because people said, well, he's not coming anymore because they said they can't listen to a guy, a pastor that doesn't tuck in his shirt. Now, the reason I don't tuck in my shirt is I just don't like tucking it in most of the time, okay? And so I begin to sit there and go, well, we're gonna have Easter. Well, I don't wanna offend anybody. And so let me pair, pull a pair of khakis out get them out, right? And I put the khakis on, I tuck in the shirt, I put, I, I put the belt on, and then what's so funny is it was almost as though I had performed a miracle. I mean, people were like, hey, listen, let my child, can my granddaughter get a picture with you? You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's like going crazy. But so you got some group of people that are happy, finally, shirt tucky any, good. This is, now you're growing in Jesus. This is something we can identify with. On the other side, what do you have? You have the people that have been hurt by traditional church grow up where you always need a three-piece suit where everybody is wearing, looking so spiritual. And then I tuck it in and they look at me as what? Traitor? You're a Traitor. You're just like those people that think that the only way that you could be spiritual is if you dress that particular way. I don't even know what to do anymore. I don't even know how to dress anymore. If you've noticed, I've been kind of sporadic. Tuck in, take out. Tuck in, take out. I think I'm going mullet style. I think I'm going to tuck it in in the front, business in the front, party in the back, and walk around and make everybody happy. Because I don't, I don't even know what to do anymore. But people... People will sit there, listen, listen, listen to me. There will be people, and it's all of us, as we take a look and we make an instant judgment of people because of what they wear or what they don't wear. Can, can I just remind you of this? The Bible teaches that the differences that we have, whatever differences we have on this earth, are so minuscule compared to the magnitude of what we have in common that we share the same father and the same brother, and you and I are all in the family of God. So to distinguish between ourselves and anything that is material is anti-Christ. Got that? So what do we see first? The first thing we see is it is it's inconsistent with who we are. Secondly, it's inconsistent with what we profess to be. With what we profess to be. Now, notice this. It says, uh, it says here, it says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The phrase I want to draw your attention to is when he says, as you hold the faith. See that there? See it in the, in the Bible? As you hold the faith. That when I say that, that's usually when you underline it. Okay, so as you hold the faith. Now, uh, let me say this. 
if you read commentaries and things like that, there is a lot of dis, uh, disagreement on what the fullness of what he's saying here. Because the Greek is actually really kind of messy. It's really choppy. It's hard to really translate in a very clear way. So people will take pages upon pages to write on all that this is meaning and what it is that he's saying. So what I want to do is this. I want to go from looking like this to just what is basically he trying to say in this passage. And let me give you the simplest understanding of what he means. When he uses that phrase, as you hold the faith, he's talking about a profession of faith. He's talking about what it is that a person claims to be. He claims that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. And not only that he is Lord, do you see the second sentence? That he is the Lord of glory. Who has glory? God and God alone. So Jesus, the person is claiming, if a person claims that Jesus Christ is Lord and that Jesus Christ is God over him, then to ultimately take part in the sin of partiality is completely inconsistent. Why? Because to say that God is Lord is to say that he is boss, is to say that you fully and completely submit yourself unto him. By the way, that's also what salvation is. It's not just simply believing with your mind, it's submitting the will unto the will of God. And it's also this, it's following the example in the way of the master. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to say that God is Lord. He's the Lord, he's living, we're following him, we're gonna live our lives through him, we're gonna follow his example. So what the scriptures are ultimately saying here is he's saying, hey, listen, for you to say that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and take impartiality is contrary to what it is that you're ultimately professing to do. Why? Because in Jesus, there is no partiality. Now, get this. I'm gonna take you a little bit deeper theologically. You ready? Here we go. Not too hard because I can't go too deep. So uh, anyway, so, so you're safe here. So get this. Here's Jesus. Let, let's look at this. Jesus is God. Agree? Jesus is God. Jesus from eternity's past enjoyed the presence with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, all three of them, in this big kind of mumbled, wonderful dance of enjoyment and glory with each other from eternity's past. All right? You got that? Pr- pretty amazing. What are you doing? Uh, we just enjoyed each other. How long? For eternity. What do you mean? We had no beginning and we have no end. We just enjoyed each other, really. And then at one time, and this is what's mind-blowing, one time out of nowhere, he chooses, well, listen, you know, um, uh, quintin billion years have gone by. I, let's go ahead and create an earth. Okay, let's do that, all right? So he creates an earth, right? And then he, he, he puts man on the earth, and here's what is so cool. This amazing God that has enjoyed their glory in each other for all this time, he says, let's create a creation that we'll allow to bring in and we'll allow them to see our glory and experience that glory firsthand and to see how awesome we truly are. So he brings them in. What does man do? He rebels. He sins. He goes the opposite way. What do we see immediately? God pushes them away. Why? Because there was already basically an infinite difference between them. Now there's an infinite sinful difference. God is infinitely holy. Man is infinitely sinful. Do you see that? So there has to be a separation from God. Don't we see that in in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, this is what we do. He says, hey, God is hanging out where? On the mountain. Where are the people hanging out? Over in the valley. What does he say? Don't even touch the mountain. You touch the mountain, you're done. You're dead. Not only that, but he says, you can't even look on me. God says, and live. So there is this constant separation between God and man. Why? Because there is a massive barrier that we call sin in between the two. I'm not talking about just socioeconomic stuff anymore. I'm talking about what the main division between the two are. It's sin. 
God can't be with man. Man can't be with God. What does he do? Well, some of you were alive then. I realized how old I was when I mentioned 18, or excuse me, 18. Wow, that's really old. Uh, 1987, and uh, the staff member said, yeah, I was born that year. What? what? You were born in 1980? How was that even possible? So I was sitting there watching my favorite president of all time, Ronald Reagan, and there's Ronald Reagan, and guess where he is? He is outside of the Berlin Wall. Do you remember this? And he's speaking, and for you that don't know, there's like a division, a wall that was between, you know, West and East Germany, and they're divided. And he gets up there, <laughs> love this, right? Gets up there, as only an actor turned president can. And he gets up and he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. <laughs> right? And so they begin to tear it down. In a spiritual, divine way, God comes forward in history and says to his son, son, tear down this wall. And he does. And this is how he does it. He's born of a virgin, so he becomes man. So instead of God being removed from him, he comes down. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us, right? And so when he comes, he's not even making distinctions, going, hey, I can hang out with you, but you're not holy enough. Where does he go? He goes to the whore. He goes to the tax collector. He goes to every sinner he possibly can. And he says, just come. If you're willing to come, just come. Just come. I'm not going to push you away. I'm not going to shove you away. You, you, you come unto me. And so what's interesting is the Bible says, and he's demonstrating this. He's demonstrating that he is God. Why? Paul, uh, Peter found this. When Peter has the vision of, of the, the big sheet that comes down with Cornelius and, and, and everything and the Gentiles, he says this. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. When he comes and he accepts all people unto himself, he's proving that he himself is God. He never showed partiality. Even his enemies in Luke chapter 20 in verse 21 says this. Even his enemies. Teacher, we know that you do not show partiality. You don't show it. Even his enemies had to admit he doesn't have it. Why? Because he is God. Therefore, that's why the Bible commands us, like all the way back in the book of Leviticus, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. Why? For us to say we are Christ's followers means that we follow his example. What example do you have of him ever being partial to anyone because of what they made or what they look like or their skin color? It's so weird. It, it would be like this. Listen, I know every once in a while I pick on you PETA people. Okay, all right. I, not the PETA pocket. Eat e the PETA. But PETA, you know, people, you know, for the, what is it? The, the, the something, something, something. All right, all right. The ethical treatment of, of animals, right? Isn't that right? And listen, PETA, great. If you're a card-carrying member, I mean, that's great. Uh, look, look, it's great. I don't want animals to suffer needlessly in her. When I shoot them from a deer stand, I want them to go down immediately, all right? I don't want any suffering at all, okay? Just, just, just letting you know, ethical shot, that's all we're taking here, okay? And all the PETA people <laughs> start throwing fruit. So um, anyway, and so, but, but here's the thing. There's some crazy people there. Let, let's just admit it. They're willing to kill a person sometimes. Some of them are willing to kill a person to save a minnow. Not, something's off there. 
All right, something's off there. Okay, so just imagine for a second you're a card-carrying PETA guy, all right, or woman, all right? And so you show up to be able to, you know, you, you want to save the squirrel. All right, that's why there's a squirrel, rare squirrel. You want to save the squirrel, the rainbow squirrel. And so you show up with the rainbow squirrel, and you show up wearing leather pants, okay, crocodile leather boots, okay, a, hat, a, a leather hat with, with peacock feathers shooting out of it, in, in two-fisting and double-fisting uh, large turkey legs, okay? And in, in between, you've got to sign, you know, save the squirrel, all right? People are going to look at you, and you'll probably be beaten down right there. You, you understand that, right? You'll probably be killed right at that moment. Why? Because what you were professing and what you were doing is two completely different things. Now, now, now get this. Who's telling this story about Jesus? His brother. His half-brother who grew up with Jesus, who saw him most of the days of his life, who grows up with him. He says, guys, something's going on with you. You're saying that you're the follower of my brother, of your brother, of your Savior. I'm telling you right now, it doesn't match up. What you're saying and what you're doing and judging people by the content of what they ultimately look like, my son never did. My, bro- my brother never did. It's inconsistent with Jesus. Here's the third thing. We'll go very quickly. Third, it is inconsistent with what we have been shown. Been inconsistent with what we have been shown. Look very quickly. We're, we're already over time. Notice this. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges in evil thoughts? Here's what he's saying. He says, the reason it is wrong for you to make distinctions among yourself is because you place yourself as a, up as a judge. And if we know anything, if we know anything, if the Bible teaches anything very clearly other than the gospel, it's you and I are lousy judge. We're a lousy judge. Would you agree? Lousy judge. Why are we lousy? Because we judge the wrong things. Uh, we, we understand in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? The heart. He's the only one that can judge because he's the only one that can look at the heart. That's why it's constantly warning us, do not judge lest you be judged. The same way you judge in appearance, you're going to judge that way, you're going to be judged the same way, all right? And so, so he says, because we, we judge with the wrong things, but we also judge in the wrong way. And here's where I want to camp out just for a second. He says, he says, notice the last phrase, we judge with evil thoughts. Here's what he's saying. The reason that you commit the sin of partiality and prejudice is because you're doing it because of your own weakness, because you think you're going to get something out of this. Did you see the rich person come in? And the only reason you give them your seat is because somehow you think that you're going to benefit from them. The pretty person walks in, you give them your seat because somehow you think that you're going to benefit. Maybe you think you're going to get a date. I don't know. You're married. You don't need a date, all right? Somehow you think you're going to benefit from this. So he says the way that you are treating people is because you want something from them. Got that? You want something. Stop for a minute. Let that settle in just for a minute. Do you know the rub? you know the feeling? Hey, I think this guy can advance my career. I think I might be able to get something out of this, so I'm going to treat them well. The person that can do nothing for you, what do you do? Just let them trickle away. Let them do their own thing. And here's what's ridiculous. He even brings out the stupidity of this <laughs> later on in, verse, uh, in the second half of verse 6. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are, are they not the ones who blaspheme an honorable name by which you were called? He goes, why in the world are you treating them that way? You think you're going to get something out of it. You're just deceiving yourself. Now, what he's saying is, he says, you become a judge, and the way you're judging is you're judging by works. 
what can this person do? How good can they be? And what is it that I could ultimately get from them? And he says, this is completely inconsistent with what I have given you and what I have shown you. God says, when I judge you, my judgment towards you has not been by your works. It's been by grace. When I see you, I don't see how corrupt and filthy, mongering and wallowing in sin that I see you. I see you in the lenses of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Did you know that if God wanted to have any other kind of relationship with us, any kind whatsoever, he could not have it apart from grace? If he said, I'm going to have a relationship with you based on something you have to do or something you have to give him, you couldn't do it because everything we do is corrupted with sin. And you say, we say, well, God didn't come to you and say, hey, listen, I'm going to save you because you can do something for me or because you have something that I want or have something that I need. There's nothing you could do for God that God can't do himself. There's nothing you can give him that God does not have already, right? Are, are you ready? So why did God do it? Here's our attitude. I'm going to treat you nice because I think I can get something from you. God sits there and says, I'm going to treat you nice because I think you need something from me. See the difference? He sees the need. He even brings that out. He says, listen, verse five, listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which has been promised to those who love him? Look, all of us understand, if, if somebody can do something for us, the natural sinful flesh is to do something for them so that we can get something in return. What is amazing about God and his grace is he gives for the sake of giving with nothing that we can give in return. That's what makes him look so glorious. Are you guys catching on to that? Let me sum this up just very quickly. He says, deny me, crucify me, kill me, and I'll die for you. I'll pay for your sin debt. I'll adopt you as the sons of God and give you eternal life. That's the great exchange for God, the way he judges. Now listen, in his autobiography, Gandhi wrote that during his student days that he read the gospel seriously and he considered converting to Christianity. Some of you have heard this before. He believed that the teachings of Jesus, that he could find the solution to the caste system. The caste system in India is about separating people and dividing. He understood that it separated people, that divided people. He wanted to unify people. He understood that Jesus may be the only answer. So one Sunday, he decided to attend services at a nearby church and to talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. When he entered the sanctuary, however, an usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go and worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church and never returned. He wrote in his autobiography, if Christians have caste differences also, he said, I might as well remain a Hindu. That usher's uh, prejudice not only betrayed Jesus, but also turned a person away from trusting him as Savior. I am very well aware of who I'm talking to right now and what context I'm talking to. And what I mean is, I'm not suggesting that all of us are prejudiced, but we do live in the South. You got that? And I do understand, and, and I get this, and I, I hear it from people, and they say, well, my grandfather this or my grandmother this. Listen, I praise God for all the godliness that your grandparents and fathers and whatever it is have passed down to you. Praise God for that. Don't want to diminish that. But in that particular area, they are dead wrong. To judge somebody because of their outward appearance is anti-Christ, anti-gospel. Let me say this, and many of us even here today that maybe don't blatantly say that you're prejudiced in that way, you still harbor prejudiced thoughts and feelings. You might even in, in, inwardly inside of you right now, you might even sit there and go, man, I hate everything that you're saying right now. 
I disagree with everything that you're saying right now. It's hurtful. I know the truth. You're confronting me. You're facing me. You know what you're being confronted with, and the reason it hurts is because it's sin inside of your heart. And here's the one thing that I believe. If you're truly born again, what I'm counting on this morning is your desire to follow Jesus and be like Jesus is greater than the sin of your flesh. That your desire, now here's the thing, none of us can take credit for that. All we can do is thank God because when God saves us by his grace, he extends his grace into us to give us a desire to be like him. Every true believer wants to be like him. God places that in our heart. Would you agree? So some of us are sitting here today, man, say, I'm struggling with this whole prejudice thing and judging people just by their appearance and what color their skin is or how much money they make. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just hold, just put that to the side for a second and say, God, this hurts. I know it hurts because it's sin. I know it is that what I've been taught. I know that it's the culture. I know that I've been guilty of it. But God, I know it's not you. I know it's inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me say this with this church. No matter what you wear, no matter how you comb your hair, how much money you make, uh, whether you have a job, whether you don't have a job, whatever kind of distinction it is, there's no distinction here. The only difference is what God draws the line at. Those who are believers and those who are not. So let me finish with this. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And what I mean by that is, have you come to realize that you're a sinner towards him? Have you come to realize that you're deserving of death and you're deserving to perish because you've rebelled against your creator? But that God in his great love, good news, that God in his great love and his great mercy sent his son to die, to die for your sins, to pay for your sin debt, a sin you can't pay, you can't work for. And he died for that, taking away the wrath of God and your sin debt so that if you will repent of your sin and turn from that way and say, God, save me, he will. And I'll give you a new heart and I'll give you a new life. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We thank you, God, for today. And God, I thank you for your word. And um, very clearly the gospel was preached this morning. And very clearly we understand that any thoughts of prejudice in our heart or partiality is contrary to who you are. God, I pray that we will abandon and repent, sweep over this place like a rushing wave. We will do business before you. Say, God, I want to be like you. You showed no partiality. Place where the...